I'm Neil Barton. You're listening to The Background Report. For this episode, I interviewed David Keene. David spent 10 years in federal prison after a road rage incident, and now he's a father, a working professional, and he's a super smart guy, highly intelligent. He had some really interesting things to say about the criminal justice system. He told me all about what it was like to be an inmate and how his life has been since then. My name's David Keene. I live in Virginia. I'm David Keene the Younger. My father's the infamous David Keene. <laughs> the infamous? <laughs> the infamous. I guess the, the New York Times once called him the Forrest Gump of American politics. Oh, is that supposed to be a compliment? I, You know, I, I think maybe it's supposed to be a semi-compliment, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are you in your 30s or 40s? I'm 37. Young guy. And your father was the president of the NRA for a couple of years, right? Yeah. During the Sandy Hook thing, he was he was the president of the NRA. So what year was that? Like 2012, 2013? 2013, 2014. Was he always a public figure before that when you were growing up? I don't know if you'd call him a public figure. He tries to sort of stay out of the spotlight. But prior to, to being uh, the president of the NRA, he was chairman of the American Conservative Union for many years, uh, since the early 80s, I suppose. And uh, prior to that, he was very active politically, has been for his entire life, I suppose. He was chairman of the Young Americans for Freedom back in the late 60s, political advisor to the vice president during the Agnew-Nixon administration. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. He worked with Nixon, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> he didn't work with Nixon. He worked for Agnew. Or worked yeah. for Agnew. Yep. Does that mean you were always kind of politically aware when you were growing up? Yeah. I got to I got to meet a lot of cool conservative luminaries, as you might say. Uh, we're sitting here in my office, and a lot of people in the political business, they have you know photos of themselves with a lot of very famous people. If you look here in my office, you'll see that there's only one picture hanging on the wall, and it's me with Ronald Reagan. That's a little <laughs> David Keene there with Ronald Reagan. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Ronald Reagan and my father were good friends, and my father helped run his 76 campaign and uh, worked on his, uh, on his 1980 campaign as well. I had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times. I was very young, so I, I did call Nancy Reagan Mr. President, which didn't go over well with her, but everybody else thought it was hilarious. She couldn't have been that offended, could she? I mean, you were a kid. I see uh, from the picture everyone has their 80s hairdos. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like growing up with your father, who's kind of heavily involved with politics at the highest levels there? You said he's tried to stay out of the public eye, but he's still kind of a public figure. What was it like having a father who's kind of a public figure like that when you're growing up? I didn't, you know, I didn't think anything was abnormal about it at the time. Mainly what he and I did a lot of is uh, we did a lot of hunting and fishing and still do. So, you know, when we both have time and our, our schedules line up, that's what we do. I'm too much of a bleeding heart for animals, so I could never be a hunter. What did you guys hunt, like deer? Uh, we're not, mostly birds. So you use shotguns for that? Yep. Yeah, uh, ducks and geese and uh, pheasant, quail, dove, all that kind of stuff. Did you always live in the D.C. area growing up? I grew up in Fairfax sort of on the outskirts of Fairfax County. It was rural. still is. That area is still rural these days. But it was particularly rural back then. A lot of our neighbors had, you know, horses. The neighborhood adjacent to ours, there were people that still had cows and that kind of thing. And even though I, I grew up in Fairfax, which is known as a very populous sort of place, I grew up in a place where, where you could go run around in the woods and my neighbor had a had a pond and we'd canoe around in it and that sort of thing. Trying to picture, is this a Clifton you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's okay. Uh, just outside of Clifton, Fairfax Station. What's your dad up to these days? He's essentially retired. He's was in Montana fishing up until recently, and I guess he's back right now dealing with some political nastiness. So there's Oh, no, really? Yeah, there's some wacky stuff going on so that I, I can't really talk about. Oh, okay. All right. No problem. <laughs> One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you today was about prison and prison reform. You went to prison for... How many years? Well, I was sentenced to 120 months. You know, there's no parole or anything. And it was, this is uh, in the federal in the federal system. 
and I ended up doing nine and a half years of that, basically my entire 20s. Wow. Yeah. Can I ask how you ended up there? What happened? I was involved in uh, a road rage incident, as they say, on, mm-hmm. uh, on GW Parkway, which is a federal parkway. A guy uh, was trying to run me off the road, and I wanted to scare him a little bit, and it didn't quite go the way that I had planned. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, but it uh, didn't work out too well for me. So. Can you tell me anything else, like any other details, or would you rather not get, get into details about what happened on the highway that day? The long and the short of it is, is there was another guy in front of me that had, had cut him off, and he took it out on me. So he tried to run me off the road. There were other witnesses that swore affidavits to that effect in my case that, that saw him trying to hit me with his vehicle. I was trying to scare him, and didn't work out too well. Was there a gun involved? Yeah. yeah there, was a, there was a firearm, and a single shot was fired. That was that. So immediately afterwards, what happened? Were you like, oh, my God, what did I just do? Or were you shocked about what just happened? Yeah, more than a little. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll bet. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, you know, things didn't go well from that point. You know, I went and I met with an attorney, and a few days later they came and they arrested me in my office. At the time I was working for the American Conservative Union as a contractor, and then that was that. So I was wondering if you could take me through, when you get arrested, what's that experience like? Do they sit you down and say, do you want to talk to us? And then you say, no, I have a lawyer. I'm going to remain silent. It, it varies wildly, I'm, I'm sure. In this instance, it was, it was the federal uh, United States Park Police um, that okay. were involved. They had been sort of, I guess, following me around for a few days before they arrested me. And, really? And they, uh, so at one point, they like came to my apartment, and I was living in D.C. at the time, and they came into my apartment and smashed it up, and then bragged me about it. They detained me coming out of a parking garage after meeting with my attorney. And, like, roughly frisked my first wife, you know, trying to get a rise out of me, essentially. They were doing things like that, impounded the car from us when we were coming out of the parking garage, told us to get lost. You know, law enforcement, and this is true in prison as well, for the most part, and this is not to to demean law enforcement uh, in any way, but they often have a sort of us-versus-them attitude, Mm -hmm. and um, sometimes that can get a little out of control. So sometimes when they get in the heat of things, they have no compassion or empathy for the people they're dealing with, basically? Is that what happens sometimes? Yeah, sometimes I think so. I mean, for instance, they went into my apartment, they smashed in the door, and I wasn't there. They knew where I was. I mean, they were, mm-hmm. they were watching me and stuff. And uh, they went in there and they smashed in the door and they smashed up things that were furniture and things like that. And then the detective called me and bragged me about it. And Why would he do that? What, what does that achieve? <laughs> I don't understand what, that, what that's meant to accomplish, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's there's no telling. Like I said, there's good guys and bad guys. So Yeah. <laughs> so I thought it was most law enforcement personnel that I've dealt with have not been, uh, have not lacked professionalism to that degree. But <laughs> Yeah. I guess there's bad apples in every bunch. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I can't imagine why he would do that except for his own, like, uh, amusement. Were they doing these things to you before you'd even been charged with anything? Yeah, I hadn't been charged with anything. Um, when I was indicted, which was, you know, several days later, my attorney had arranged what they call a self-surrender mm-hmm. um, because I mean, we knew they were going to arrest me. It wasn't yeah. like it was a secret. So yeah. but we had agreed that I would go and surrender myself and do all this stuff after they had set a time for it and all that stuff. And a couple hours before that was set to occur, they came into my office and arrested me at my desk instead. And, uh, they had actually called media to come out and sit outside and things like that. What That's, was the point of that? <laughs> what they do <laughs> yeah I, I didn't know they actually call media though. they uh sometimes they do that kind of thing in, in my case they did so do you think that was to taint any possible jury in your case or probably just for his own personal aggrandizement or whatever the case may be i mean it was it was all the detectives doing so so once you went in you were booked right was it a, a, a local jail facility or a federally run facility that you went showed up at at first uh it was uh, the alexandria city jail 
So it's where they, they house a lot of federal inmates for the area. And I, I was in, I was working in Alexandria, so it's not like it was far, but and that's where I went. They booked me in, and then um, they put me in what they call ADSAG, which is isolation. They, um, they had me in a, in solitary for, I want to say it was like 20-some-odd days, something like that. Oh, my God. Isn't ADSAG like kind of a euphemism for just logging someone in a room alone for yep. long periods of time? <laughs> yeah, they, they called it protective custody because of the... At the time, it was a high-profile case. There was a lot of media coverage. Mm-hmm. So uh, they wanted to not have me in with other inmates in case it would be a problem. That's what they told you, but do you think that was their actual concern, was protecting your physical safety? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, a lot of the stuff's like uh, you can just make guesses. You have, I, I don't know for certain. I know that once we had made inquiries, and initially they refused to respond to my attorneys, and then subsequently they said that it was for my protection. And then, you know, then as we continued to raise a ruckus about it, they eventually let me out. And Into uh, general population? Yep. Is that Alexander City Jail? That's run by the sheriff's deputies, right? Yeah, it's the Alexander Sheriff's Department. Mm-hmm. How do you feel they treated you besides sticking you in a ad sag? You know, how do you, how do you feel they treated you in general? Were they respectful or do they just seem uncaring? What's it like dealing with guys like that? I mean, I can't speak for you know for all all jails mm-hmm. everywhere but it's a pretty professionally run facility so the guys are professional and pretty secure there's not not a whole lot of violence not a whole lot of contraband you get three squares a day three meals a day are you fed sufficiently yeah i mean food is not great but that's yeah <laughs> that's that's how it goes you know as far as those kinds of places go it's not obviously you don't want to be there but it's, yeah, it could no, be a lot worse. <laughs> I guess it's not meant f- to be a fun place, you know. But no, no. So when you're in j- the general population there in the local jail, you're waiting for your trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, were there all kinds of inmates with various charges? There was a lot of, you know, a lot of different people, a lot of different walks of life that are there. I mean, this thing about jail, it's like a mixing, you know, mixing pot of all different kinds of people. So you've mm-hmm. got people that are there for, and you have, you've got local inmates that are arrested by the city police for minor drug charges, for assault and battery, for whatever the case may be. Then you've got federal inmates that are housed there, guys that are in there for financial crimes. and White-collar uh, guys, too? Yeah, you got white-collar guys in there. You got, let's see, when I was in there, Zacharias Masawi was there, one of the terrorist guys. Oh, God. Did you meet him? No, no, no. He wasn't in general population. He was in oh, okay. a holding cell next to me one time because we had the same judge. I never talked to him or anything. There were some other, like, terrorist guys there. And they mostly kept them separated. It's not like you have much to talk to them about, right? <laughs> Those guys were not very popular. <laughs> yeah, I imagine they weren't. This is in 2002 and 2003. Oh, yeah, the country was still in a fervor over that stuff. Even run-of-the-mill criminals in jail would not have... Uh, those guys wouldn't have had a good day if they them <laughs> out in the general population. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. So were those guys the terrorist guys? Were they kept in ADSEG usually? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, like, when I was in ADSEG, they were back there with me, but I didn't. you didn't see each other. So. So did you see what happens when people have medical problems? Are they able to get treatment when they need it? Honestly, I, I doubt that their health care is that great. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have any opportunity to interact with them on that level, but um, I was healthy. I was 21, 22 years old. I wasn't there. That, I, I don't think I was there that long. I was, uh, maybe it was like six or eight months, something like that. And then what happened? Was there a trial or like a plea agreement that you came to with the federal prosecutors? There was a plea agreement. You know, needless to say, I wasn't very happy with it. That's what I was advised to do. I was sentenced to the minimum. And there's a federal judge named Leona Brinkema. They do a, an extensive investigation. Um, the federal government does. 
uh, prior to sentencing, they call it a pre-sentence investigation. PSI. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. They do a pretty extensive report and all this, and they did all that. There were character references and so on and so forth. And my judge had sentenced me and said that she thought that it was a, a gross miscarriage of ju- justice, that it was a, that she was statutorily prohibited from sentencing me to less time. There was no guidelines. There was no, you know, it's what they call minimum mandatory. So mm-hmm. there's not, there's no leeway for her to take into account character or circumstances or anything, anything like that. So, oh, really? No. So, so no, no matter how many people write letters in your support, she, by law, she has to follow a mandatory minimum sentence. Exactly. Wow. So did you go straight from the local jail into federal prison when you were sentenced, or was there some time in between where you were out on bail or bond? Once they arrested me at my desk, I never got out again until I was finally released. After I was sentenced, I left Alexandria City Jail, and I went to, it was a regional jail somewhere in Virginia. I think it was Orange County. It was a long time ago, and it wasn't for very long. It was for a couple of months, and it's pretty typical because the different jails that have contracts with the federal government, they they charge the federal government a certain amount of money per day to house inmates, and some jails are cheaper than others. So once you have no need to be in Alexandria City Jail, which is expensive, uh-huh. they ship you to somewhere out in the boonies. It's cheaper. Oh, okay. And those jails are not good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Are they privately run, or does the government run them? No, no, they're they're lo- usually run by local jurisdictions. And the one I went to was a regional jail, and it, was, it wasn't that it was a terrible, terrible place. It was just that there was, now you're, all of a sudden, you're far away from home. The visitation hours were terrible. You couldn't call home easily. The place was pretty dirty and grungy and grimy. What you'd expect out of a small regional jail in the middle of nowhere. Less funding, less less everything. So now, is that a federal facility, or is that a transition place for you? And they just uh, they house you there until until the federal system is ready to take you. And then one day they and you don't know when, but mm-hmm. you know one day they say, okay, pack your stuff, you're going. And yeah, you know it's, you don't really have any. There's nothing to pack. <laughs> yeah, really, you can't. You don't really have any possessions, right? No. So so then you're you're like okay, and you know they shackle you up and and put you in a van, and they drove us to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. There's a big airfield there. And they took us there. And once we got there, there were a bunch of vans and buses from all over the region, from as far as New York and and further. They had all these guys, men and women, mostly men, standing outside in lines, cuffed and shackled. They had U.S. Marshal Service with shotguns all standing around. And then uh, what they call Con Air comes in, the airplane. Oh, so it's kind of the Con Air thing is real. <laughs> they have uh, contract flights, I guess. It was like from some defunct airline. <laughs> Great. It had like uh, had hopefully like, not TWA. No, no. But they used to have a Pan Am plane. That's what it was. Uh, it had like peeling lettering on the side of the plane. And, <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, I was like, uh, we have to get on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. You know, it was like some some like dilapidated seven thirty seven. You're like, uh. Yeah, it probably still had ashtrays in it from back in the day, right? Yeah. It, well, most of the armrests were missing, had been torn out, and like yeah, the, you know, the overhead bins had been removed. And but there's like straps and stuff hanging and like it, it looks like it looked like a like somebody had like gone through there and just torn everything out, <laughs> just gutted it. Yeah, and like not with tools, but like just yanked it out. And <laughs> oh my god! And you're like, oh, this is nice. And you go in, you sit down, and they lock you into a ring in the floor. There you sit. There you sit. Huh? Does the plane make several stops to drop people off at various locations? They go to different sort of uh, regional locations. In this case, uh, we went to. I think we just flew straight to Atlanta and uh, went to the Atlanta airport and then I got off the plane got on a you know US Marshal Service bus and they basically are giant tour buses so if you ever see a giant uh-huh. tour bus that has blacked out windows and has an orange stripe all the way around it 
that is a U.S. Marshal Service boss. <laughs> oh, okay. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, you know, they've got guys with shotguns and M16s on them, and they're, they've got shackled up people on board. They took us to USP Atlanta, which is a United States penitentiary, and it's also a transit center. Where Al Capone served time. Yeah, it's a really grungy place. Yeah, uh, I've heard. Yeah, so we went there, and then I was there for, I want to say about six weeks. You know, subsequent to that, then I got... One day they told me that I was leaving. I was like, great, because that's never, those places are not fun because everybody's in transit, so nobody has anything. You know, you can't communicate with anybody, not a whole lot of access to reading materials. It's just. Yeah, how do you you pass the time? I mean, whether when you're in, either when you're in AdSeg in Alexandria or you're there, even if you have cellmates, I mean, besides chatting with each other, how do you pass the time? This is day after day and you don't know when you're going someplace or where right do a lot of reading okay <laughs> and you're allowed to when you can when you can get your hands on books uh, when you're in transit that's the toughest thing is i've been a pretty uh, prolific reader uh, since i was a little kid so yeah you always <laughs> struck me as like a super intelligent guy thanks <laughs> <laughs> now, are you allowed to have only a certain amount of magazines or books or do you guys like swap them around between the inmates or yeah i mean once you get to where you're going they have depending on where you are they have different rules about how you can get books, how many you can have, and same thing with magazines and other periodicals. And mm-hmm. uh, once I got to the uh, the initial place where I was, I was at uh, FCI Butner, which is a pretty easygoing, medium security federal facility. I had a lot of books. They've got a library. You know, all those places have libraries. At one point, I think uh, I was receiving like I think it was like sixteen or seventeen different magazine subscriptions. I was receiving I think three different daily newspapers at one point. The Wall Street Journal. The Financial Times and uh, the Washington Times. And then I would get, you know, probably five to ten books a week, and and I read almost all of it. <laughs> oh, all right. So the uh, medium security. Can you explain to me, like, as far as from your experience, what's mm. the different security levels? I've heard of, you know, maximum security. That's where they keep extremely violent and dangerous offenders mm. typically. But sometimes they mess up or and they throw a kid in there for who, you know, bounced a few checks, you know, or. <laughs> You know, uh, what are the different levels and what does it mean for... In the federal system, that's highly unlikely that mm-hmm. something like that would happen. The reason why, for example, that I was sentenced and then had to go sit in a Virginia jail and then subsequently had to go to the transit center and sit there and wait, in the federal system, they do a classification based on your your criminal history, your PSI, the current crime that you're incarcerated for. And then they take into account other factors. And based on all of that information, they give you a, a review and classification that says that, you know, you have this many points. And if you have this many points, then this is the security level that you need to be in. And they can give you a variance. So they have the authority, whoever's doing the initial review can give you a variance of a couple of points based on PSI data. You know, if they, if it's like, oh, this guy's locked up for something relatively minor and his criminal history is not so bad, but... He also strikes me as a really, really violent person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then they might, you know, they they might give you a, a variance of an extra point or something like that, and try to push you into being into a, a higher security facility, or you know, the other way around. There's uh, in the federal system, there's several different security levels. You have your camps, which are no fences. They're dormitory style housing, open mm-hmm. open do- dorm style housing. Um, minimal staff or, or guards or whatever you want to call them, correctional officers. And they, and they have ratios and all of that at, at different security. It's the federal government. They have a procedure for everything that you can imagine. So and it's not just true for prisons. It's true for everything. They've got a very extensive uh, guideline for 
every step of every part of the process. Do they follow it all the time? Not necessarily. But So they have their, their camps, and then they have what they call their uh, low security uh, correctional institutions. It's LSCIs. They have your medium security correctional institutions, which are called FCIs, mm-hmm. which obviously it doesn't follow, but yeah. that's what they do. So, so if it's an FCI, it's a medium. If it's an LSCI, it's a low. And there's different levels of FCIs. They have higher security FCIs, uh, which are not quite penitentiaries, but they house a lot of potential penitentiary inmates in those facilities. And that's generally, it's sort of a um, an administrative workaround to permit them to house penitentiary inmates in facilities that are a little bit cheaper and in locales where they don't want the stigma of having a penitentiary. So instead they say, oh, it's an FCI, it's not a penitentiary. Oh, I understand, and, okay. <laughs> so it's there's a variety of reasons that they do that as well. Uh, but mainly it's cost. Um, it's cheaper to house inmates in a, in a medium security facility than it is in a, in a penitentiary. Um, just oh, okay. because of the staffing ratios and the level of security. Was your ultimate destination FCI Butner? Yeah, that's where I ended up, FCI Butner. Actually got to be quite good friends with um, the infamous Jonathan Pollard. Uh, yeah, Jonathan Paul. I've read books about him, yeah. multiple books. Yeah, uh, he's out these days. Yes, he is. Um, I, I'm not allowed to communicate with him, and he's not allowed to communicate with me. But uh, oh, is that part of your release conditions? You can't associate with other people that were convicted of, you know, it doesn't apply to me anymore. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you when you first get out, you're on supervised release, and that is part of the rules. That doesn't apply to me anymore, but it certainly applies to him. So I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, dare put him in any sort of danger and try to. But he's, yeah. you know, he's out now. He didn't think he was ever going to get out. And um, he and I uh, would talk every day. So, Oh, is that right? Well, you know, there's, and, and this is not to demean other prisoners, but there's really not a whole lot of guys to talk to that are <laughs> highly intellectual. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> so. Or, yeah, they have a lot of life experience. They're well-schooled and things, yeah. Yep, so. Jonathan Pollard was a Navy spy mm-hmm. while he was caught spying for israel i guess mm-hmm. or taking documents and passing them to israel yep. i think in his defense he said i wasn't really i didn't intend to do anything against america i was just basically pro-israeli right i was trying to help israel out yeah and it, and he kind of he got a pretty hefty sentence and kind of mm-hmm. got kind of got screwed you know and everybody has their story but in his case alder james was counterintelligence for the united states and was was also working for the russians so yeah so anytime a spy was caught throughout the 80s and early 90s he would pin things on those people that he was responsible for Uh and he did that to pollard so when pollard was sentenced the the prosecutors in the government was convinced that he was responsible for the deaths of all these american agents in russia they thought that he had leaked information sci data that's special compartmentalized information to the Israelis, and then the Israelis had subsequently either traded it, sold it, or somehow leaked it to the Russians and, and compromised those people's lives. But that wasn't what happened, and that didn't come yeah. out till many years later. When it did come out, at that point, it became clear that he was politically valuable, so they wouldn't let him out for a long time. And it's kind of kind of a rough situation for a guy to be a pawn in a, in a game like that. Did he ever mention a guy named Rafi Eitan, his uh, handler? Israel, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The the fighter pilot guy, Rafi, was a, a Mossad agent, and he was he's legendary in Israel. He was he was on the team that captured eight of Eichmann in mm-hmm. South America in the sixties. I understand that Pollard met a couple fighter Israeli fighter pilots at a party or something like that. And yeah, it, he told me a lot of a lot of wacky stuff. He's a really interesting guy. It was clear, you know, that when he was doing all that stuff, you know, he was young. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. Yeah, and young guy. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you know, he's a sharp guy, but like I said, it's like they they 
some of the stuff that I've seen on him where they're like, oh, he did all this stuff. And it's like, dude, he was a low-level naval intelligence analyst. He didn't even have access to that data. <laughs> right. <laughs> How would he have had it, you know? Yeah. So, so, I mean, you know, us being D.C. people, you know, living around here you i'm sure you know plenty of people that have sci clearance and how i do yeah yeah and those that you know the kind of data that they touch you can't you can't even take it out of the building <laughs> right yeah, yeah. It's, it's very closely guarded right i mean and that's not a new development <laughs> so so you know it's you really had to have access and be fairly senior in order to to traffic in that sort of information and he wasn't so at one point they had said that he that he was responsible for all these piles of data Mostly, what he was doing is he was sharing movement information with the with the Israelis. But anyway, not to get too sidetracked. But. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> Do you think you might reach out to him someday after he's off supervised release? I know you don't know when that ends. So, well, he's not on supervised release. He he was sentenced back in the '80s, and he's out on parole, and he had a life sentence. So I don't think he's going to be off anytime soon. And because of the security interests that the government has taken in, in his case, uh-huh. they probably won't let him talk to people they consider you know uh, you know if you're if you're a convicted felon or anything like that they're being incredibly restrictive with them so i doubt that i'll ever have the opportunity to talk to him again which is a shame because i considered him a friend so yeah yeah all right well i was gonna tell you i mean if uh, i pay a referral bonus for podcast guests of that caliber so (laughs) (laughs) so when you're in fci butner you became friends with him what's the setup like are you in a cell with like a cellmate during the night and then they let you out during the day what's your daily routine like yeah so fci butner was a was a fairly unique place because most medium security facilities you're in a cell and they lock you in the cell at night at fci butner they don't even lock the doors to the cells you know they have doorknobs on the cell, on the cell doors is that right yeah and it's uh it's it's kind of like one of those places that when you're in the feds if there's a place that you would really like to get to that's it oh okay all right yeah. it's desirable yeah it's very desirable to be there and there's trade-offs with that there's a lot of good things about that place but there's also a lot of really bad things there's a lot of really bad people there and really yeah, like uh, child molesters and notorious, uh, notorious, very bad people. But they put them there to protect them. So yeah, um, and and because it's a desirable place, there's not a lot of violence there. There's not a, a lot of any of that stuff, you know. And it, and it's sort of like a mutual thing. Like people don't want to commit acts of violence because they don't want to go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, as I say, there's trade-offs that go with that. I was at a event. You, uh, you'll love this. I was at a uh, a Breitbart event. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Right. Um, and there was a CNN guy there that was saying terrible things about me. Did he even know you? Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was saying terrible things about me, which is, you know. And he didn't have his facts straight, which is typical with those guys. So, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I corrected him, and there were f- some other individuals there that, you know, from both sides of the aisle. And somebody was asking me about it, and I was telling them, and they said I was at this place, and then I was at that place. And they said, well, what's the difference between the, the pen and the, and the medium? And I said, well... Uh, he said, do you like, which one do you like better? I said, in some respects, I like the pen better. And they said, well, why is that? I said, well, because in the pen, if somebody disrespects you, they are likely to be stabbed. So they, <laughs> so they don't do that. Yeah. And everybody thought that was funny. But it's, it's true. And it's not that people go around stabbing each other all the time. That's not the way it works. But that there's the possibility that it could happen. In fact, statistically, uh, I would point this out to people while I was in there. I would say... They'd be like, oh, you know, it's dangerous. And I'd be like, statistically, you're wrong. Um, (laughs) Based on your demographic, you know, data, your socioeconomic background, you're far more likely to be killed or injured, you know, in an altercation out in the free world than you are in prison. But 
I'm sure there's a lot of stereotypes about prison and movies and TV that just are not true at all, right? Nonsense. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of this stuff that's nonsense, and some of it isn't. I mean, sexual predation, it happens, for sure. Did I ever have any problem with that? No. I've seen it happen. Not like I've seen seen somebody like get get butt raped or anything like mm-hmm. that. But I've seen the process because the, the predators that do that kind of thing, they, they pick the weak to prey upon. And I didn't have that problem. So yeah. initially they would approach me because I'm a clean cut looking white guy with wears glasses. But they would find out very quickly that <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that uh, they're selected a bad target. This is not going to work not out for be them. Productive, yeah. yeah. And, and most of those guys are really um, they're really scared. You know, the, the people that are that victimize other people, they're they're generally very scared. They're generally very weak. Is that right? Oh yeah, and they're in their mind and in their soul. And I suspect that it's all connected in some way. Most of those guys were abused when they were young, and they continue to take it out on other people. And and that's absolutely true. I mean, the data backs that up. And those guys, if they, I mean, if they uh, try to test you, you just look them in the eye. And mm-hmm. Were you ever in a position where you had to fight physically uh, just to let someone know I'm not the guy to be messed with, go to someone else? Yeah, on a few occasions, but it was pretty rare. So. so one thing I always wondered about in prison when that happens, I'm sure once in a while you something might happen where you have to defend yourself, but then you can get punished for fighting, right? Absolutely. Even though you didn't really have a choice. That's that's absolutely the case. You have no uh, if somebody does something bad to you in a, in, a, <clears throat> in a public place in, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and you attempt to defend yourself with force, you're subject to be charged with a felony. You don't have a right to defend yourself in the Commonwealth. You don't. Huh? No, no. You have a right to use lethal force if somebody else is threatening you or an immediate family member with lethal, lethal force. Now, does that mean that you're going to get charged? Probably not. But the law says that you should be. And the same thing holds true in, in a prison. Sometimes they might throw the case out. They call them write-ups, and they'll just, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll throw it out. And I have had that happen, where got into it with a guy. He started it. Of course, this, the evidentiary standards are pretty low. Pretty loose, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, they're pretty loose. But they do have standards. Um, you know, they have a hearing officer. There's a process. You know, they fill out certain paperwork. If the paperwork's not filled out properly, there's time constraints. If the paperwork's not filled out within certain time constraints, then they can't bring the charges, just like any other legal process, because they deprive you of, you know, they basically take away some of your good time. So they're, they're in essence, depriving you of your freedom for a certain mm-hmm. amount of time. They also impose other penalties. But in order for them to, to legally do that, there has to be due process. So they, they have a due process that they follow. I had an instance where a guy, he, I, was, I was asleep, and the guy punched me in the chin. Seems he, kind of unnecessary. He was, he was totally nuts, this guy. He didn't even speak English. And, uh, oh, jeez. I'm not a little guy, and I was in incredibly good condition. <laughs> you still seem like you're in good shape now. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> not, not, not what you were back then? No, I mean, one of the cool things about FCI Butner is they had, a, they had weights there. And oh, okay. I lifted a lot of weights and ran on the track all the time. Yeah, it was the best physical condition of my life. This actually happened. I was, I was in shoe at Butner. It's a long story, but I spent a long time in shoe. That's the, the whole. Or I did a total of my nine and a half years. I did a little over two years of it in shoe. How did you end up there? Long story short, <laughs> they were in the process of taking away cigarettes. You know, you used to be able to smoke in, in federal facilities. Yeah, I thought you still could. Not in any joint that I'm aware of, but as yeah. they began to phase it out, I still smoke today. In those days, I was a smoker, and I said, hmm, they're going to take it away. There's, that's a huge money-making opportunity. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, of course, a lot of people were thinking the same thing. So, And at the time, uh, I had a lot of what they call hustles, different odd jobs and things that you do to make money. 
and officially like within like, no no okay no, totally unofficially and um you know you have guys they call them store guys and they have like you know sweet stuff and soap and shampoo and all the stuff you can buy out yeah of snicker can. bars yeah exactly and, and then uh you know those guys run a store and they'll extend credit as well as have cash and carry i did the same thing but for cigarettes so oh okay so i was a cigarette store man and <laughs> is that right you had your own tobacco shop that's right that's right. right so so people would come and they would you do for you know like two for three um mm-hmm. so you know you got guys they have jobs or they have their hustles and they're short but they want some smoke so i'd give them two packs of cigarettes and they give me three back you know mm-hmm. that sort of thing or i'd give them two cartons and they give me three cartons back when they get paid i did it because i figured if i did that then i could smoke for free yeah and and Steady i supply. yeah i made a little little money at it but when they said that they were gonna quit selling cigarettes i i set aside i think it was like 40 something cartons so well, where, do you, where do you have room to keep all those yeah that's not technically within the rules to have that much stuff <laughs> yeah i imagine so so i had set it aside and um i don't know where you where do you hide all those i mean i thought you just basically have a bed and small room right oh no, no? oh okay <laughs> so a, a prison is like a little city oh all right <laughs> yeah, um so you know it's like keep in mind that most of the jobs are done by inmates so, yeah so, you know, the plumbers, the electricians, cooking, cooking groundskeepers, all of those people, those are all other prisoners. Different guys have access to different things. They have different guys have different skills. I had a couple of different jobs over the years, and I was able to set those things aside, but I was partnered up with a guy. All of a sudden, uh, some, something showed up in my bag that shouldn't have been there. Uh-oh. And so I went to shoe. They wanted me to tell them what I knew, and I, first of all, I didn't know anything, and mm-hmm. second of all, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything. So you were gonna dime out somebody else. Yeah, and yeah. you know, not to say that that's like some sort of like there's some sort of honor in a place like that. Most of those guys tell at the drop of a hat; they'll tell anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they act like they won't, but they they will tell immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and it depends on where you are and what you're talking about. But that's generally the case. I had nothing to say, and so they kept me in there for a long time. And that's uh, that's what they do when you don't want to cooperate with the federal government as they see how long well let's see how long you can hold out in the shoe yeah and what but anyway this this guy he, he punches me in the chin Ugh. and uh and it didn't go well for him yeah uh, and then when they did the investigation they asked me what happened and, and i mean a situation like that you just tell them i don't know i don't oh, know really? i don't know what happened they're like well did he did he do this and did, were you defending no, you say nothing you admit nothing because you don't have the right to defend yourself so you can't say oh yeah he did this okay and, yeah so so basically as long as you don't say anything and the other person doesn't say anything there's no case so you're not maintaining some code of honor among no you just don't cons. say a word you just don't say anything yeah you and can't then, admit to defending yourself right yeah you can't admit to that you can't admit to anything so you just say nothing you say well what what happened why do you have an abrasion on your chin and why is he all bloody <laughs> it's like <laughs> I, I have no idea. I mean, maybe he fell. And what happened to your chin? <laughs> uh, I don't know. There's something on my chin. I wouldn't wear that. Oh and, my god! And um, they're probably used to hearing that every time. Oh yeah, one of those. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and the guys like the guys like I understand what you're doing here. And I was like, yeah. I have no idea what you're talking about. You know? <laughs> that's that's how you're supposed to. And it's you're looking at each other, and it's like it's not like you know you're just playing a game, I guess. And yeah. Uh, and I had a couple other situations kind of like that, um, but that was that was one of the. That was one of the ones where I just kind of didn't say anything. Another another situation had happened where they were like, well, nothing really terrible happened, and nobody's there's no sense in getting everybody in trouble. So they just tore up the paperwork and threw it away. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, and that happens. So, 
So the two years you spent in the shoe, about was that straight continuously, or were you in and out of the shoe um, over I was, time? It was like a year and it was like a year and seven months, uh-huh. and then the other time was a much shorter span. It was it was leading into me being transferred somewhere. So, oh really? Yeah, uh, that's when I got transferred to the pen. To the penitentiary. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you were in the shoe, what, what are you allowed to have? Are you can you have a TV or books or magazines, anything like that to keep your mind occupied? No TV. There's no TV in the, like, you can't have a TV in regular uh, general population either. Okay. They have TVs but uh, in common areas, but you're not allowed to have those. I mean, there's this perception that you're allowed to have. You're allowed to have more than what some people think and less than what other people think. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, so there's, in general population, I had quite a collection of books. I had a lot of art materials. I was uh, I painted a lot. I worked out a lot. And then you can have things like uh, things that you can buy out of the store. So like, you know, ramen noodle soup and uh, peanut butter and, you know, uh-huh. all, all kinds of different stuff that you can think of. And yeah, uh, you can have like a cooler and you can have uh, you have radios and everybody has radios. In fact, that was one of the other things I did is I fixed radios for people. Oh, is, really? Which is um, very lucrative. There's not a lot of money in it, but it's like it takes like two seconds to solder somebody's uh, headphones back together, and it's like their life. They need their they need their music, and you can't watch yeah. TV without headphones. Oh, you can't? No, because okay. they're all silent, so they all, <laughs> all broadcast right. on different channels. So you have to um, you have to have your radio and your headphones in order to watch TV. And oh, it, all right. So the TV like wirelessly transmits a signal to the radios, and you choose. Yeah. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. So, so you know, like when you go into a TV room, there's a bunch of guys sitting around wearing headphones, sitting in chairs. I mean, that's that's looking at the TV, you know. <laughs> and that's um, so without a without a radio, you're like dead in the water. Yeah. So so and you know some of those guys don't have a whole lot. So um, if if their radio breaks, they they need to get it fixed. Mm-hmm. It's just like um, it's just like being a car repair guy. Yeah, it's the guys with the cheap cars that are keep coming in and getting their car fixed. So, um, you know, you'd resolder those things and you'd charge them like a buck or two bucks in stamps. And, oh, okay. And that was the going currency, and then get more and more stamps, and you use those to buy things that you needed from the store man. <laughs> There's a whole underground economy going oh, yeah, on there, big huh? time. Yeah. And are the uh, I imagine the guards are fully aware of this? Absolutely, they don't mind. No, no, as long as it doesn't get out of control. As long as there's not violence associated with it, mm-hmm. they essentially uh, they condone it. So it gives guys an opportunity, like, uh, you know, guys that really don't have any other opportunities. I had a guy one time tell me, he said, he said you really, like, for guys that are doing time, you do pretty well for yourself. And I said, well, you know, my family takes care of me, and they send me a lot of publications, and then I also do these odd jobs and side jobs. Mm-hmm. And all that money I would spend back into the economy to get people to do other jobs so like i had a guy who would come get my laundry and take it and go wash it and fold it and bring it back you know and it's like i had a guy who comes to clean my cell for me and there you call it your house and people mm-hmm. would come clean my house I, you know and i paid these guys to do these things and then i did you know it's just a micro economy so. wow that's really interesting i know like there was that happened as often as far as you know you can pay people to do things various things for you absolutely it's like uh, oh you want some custom shorts uh, okay, with like <laughs> cargo pockets on them. I paid a guy to make the. I'd pay guys to make those for me. Or they had uh, just any. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff like that. And yeah, what's the uniform and mm-hmm. Butner? Uh, what, are you, what are you wearing usually? Well, they have khakis, which mm-hmm. is standard pretty much everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have like sweats, sweatpants, shorts, 
t-shirts and tank tops and that kind of thing so depending on where you are and what time of day it is um, you can wear like casual ish wear i spent a lot of time out on the on the rec yard lifting weights and running and i that was where i worked for many years it was in, on the rec yard so so i would uh get all that stuff all nice yeah and you don't have to carry around a bag you got cargo pockets you put your radio in there oh okay all right <laughs> And, uh, you know, people carry around little mesh bags with all their stuff in it and see-through. So. <laughs> so I imagine your experience went south quickly, though, once you get thrown in the shoe, right? Yeah, because, you, you know, basically lose everything. You lose everything. Huh. Even reading material? Yeah, I mean, you get to, you can have that stuff sent in and you can get stuff out of your property. But you lose a lot when that happens. It's it's like a big setback. That means you're more bored. It's harder to pass the time. I read a lot of books. Well, oh, when you're in the shoe, too? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I read a lot of books. And to answer your question, a lot of guys don't have people sending them stuff. Maybe they don't have families that are taking care of them and things like that. Yeah, so in shoe, uh, everybody's locked in their cells. You would fish stuff to each other. Build little. You build a little device and put a string on it, and you fling like, it down the hallway into other people's rooms. And don't they call that kiting? Yeah, kite, well, kite is when you send a send a message. Um, but you you'd send your car out, and you call a little car. You send your car out there, and other guys have their cars, and they would send it bounce it off the wall down the down the tier, and somebody would pull it in with their car. You would take staples and put them on there for little hooks. Is that right? Yeah, it's wow. like a, it's like a whole thing. <laughs> you'd see people car people's cars, and you'd be like, "Wow, this is serious." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you could like share publications, and sometimes guards would pass that stuff. But sometimes they you had guys working they didn't want to, and so you'd send people newspapers, magazines, and all that kind of stuff, and they'd uh-huh. send you stuff, you know, other magazines that they get, and so on and so forth. And give it gives you something to do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I imagine probably takes some practice to bounce that stuff between cells too, right? I got to be pretty good at it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I could give you a whole dissertation on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've seen it on uh, that show Lock Up on MSNBC once or twice. It's pretty impressive. I, I've other, never watched any of those shows. <laughs> I yeah, I don't blame you. I <laughs> guess I'm, I probably wouldn't want to either. Mm. How do the guards treat you? Like, what kind of guys are the guards? Uh, most mo- of the time. I mean, most of those guys, a lot of them are, like, former military. A lot of good guys. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, um, you got some guys, you got a few in there that are really bad people. But that's true anywhere. Yeah. And I guess that's true in every, any group of people, right? Absolutely. Um, and, and, of course, you have a, what, I, what I like to say is these are the guys that couldn't pass the police exam. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, I mean, that's not true for everybody. But, but you know, you're in a, you're in a federal. Well, a lot of people say that, though, yeah. I mean, whether it's true or not. In the state system, it's it's far more true but in the feds these guys make good money and they have good benefits and so this is a desirable job in a rural area you got guys coming in there that they're starting at forty, fifty thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. um you know if they can pass their exam and they're getting great benefits and in five years they're making sixty seventy thousand dollars a year out in the boonies that's a lot of money yeah that's a lot of money out there yeah and you know it's a lot of money and for a low risk you know, some prison guards tell you it's risky. it's not a very risky job statistically. It doesn't require them to do a lot. It's you know, like I said, good benefits. So overall, I mean, uh, a lot of those guys were decent guys, professional, you mm-hmm. know, friendly. Do you talk to them a lot? Do you get to know about their lives and their they tell you about their families and stuff? You're spending a lot of time together, right? Generally, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, you don't want to be. Uh, it's also bad for your sort of personal image to be hanging out. With. You're too chummy with guards. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, um, you know, there were some that I talked to that were pretty cool. A lot of guys would make conversation with me because they, I would get comments a lot of times like, "What the hell are you doing here?" <laughs> yeah, I imagine. <laughs> and, and I and I'd be like, "Well, you know," and I'd tell them, and then they then they'd be horrified because 
I had a couple guys tell me they'd be like, "That could that could happen to me." Oh yeah, anyone and, could make a bad decision, and all of a sudden, that's ten years of their life gone. It's their twenties gone just because they had one bad day or did one bad thing. Exactly, and and so it, it blows their minds because most of those guys, even the guys that are decent guys, they have this worldview that something they could never end up in a place like that. Like they mm-hmm. they would never you know sell drugs, and that's what most of those people are in there in the, in a federal medium security or even a even a penitentiary. A lot of them are in mm-hmm. there for like bank robbery, selling drugs, fraud. Sometimes, but rarely, most of those guys are in lower security facilities. And then you have some more egregious crimes, but it's usually gun-related, drug-related, or bank robbery. And then as a result, and those are like the three big things. And as a result, you have like sort of your different kind of guys that commit those kinds of crimes. And I know it sounds weird, but you can totally typecast them. Like you can see a guy and you'd be like, he's a bank robber. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and, and then the other thing that's interesting is that bank robbers, most of them are serious drug addicts. And oh, really? Yeah, yeah most well. of them are opiate opiate addicts, in my experience. Uh, either that or they or they got hooked on bank robbery. But usually it's the same kind of thing. They have the same drive as a result of that whatever's whatever does that to them in their brain. Did you ever meet any of those bank robbers that got away with it the first few times? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> They get greedy, and, and not only that, but the vast majority of bank robbers are not... I think I read a statistic somewhere once that, like, the average bank robber gets away with, like, 1500 bucks or something like that. And, yeah. You know, and most of them use a note. They don't even, even use a gun because they know mm-hmm. that the penalties are really bad when you involve a gun. So they just, they just give them a note that says, give me the money. If wow. you say that you have a gun on the note, the penalties increase. Is that right? Yeah. So wow, they, that's a big difference. So the huh? guy, and, and keep in mind, these guys are usually repeat offenders. Guys that are bank robbers are in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out their entire life. Yeah. And for most of them, partly it's because they're, like I said, they're opiate, opiate addict, addicts. So. And then um, you got your drug dealers, and you've got different classes of drug dealers. But the vast majority, sort of the hardest workers, are usually the, drug, the low-level drug dealers. Because they are grinders. I mean, they. Yeah. And you know, again, I'm I'm sort of mass generalization, but you've got these guys that never had any opportunity in their life, and they, you know, a lot of them grew up in the ghetto, or they grew up, you know, somewhere, and they didn't have anything else to do, and this was the only opportunity to go make money, so they went and they did that. And the guys, it's kind of sad the way the system works, because the guys that are low level are the guys that get the most time, because they get caught with the bigger quantities. Is that why? No, because the way the system's set up is. Um, and if you're not careful, I'll start going off on my whole. I've got this whole thing about it that drives me nuts. That's all right. That's why I'm here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so, so I'm interested. In. So the um, the way the system works is uh, most federal agencies lack the ability to perform adequate investigative tasks, mm-hmm. um, and in my opinion, that's a danger to to our republic. And it, like seriously, it, if you go back and you look at every major p- potential terrorist attack that has been foiled in the last ten years, you'll see that every single one of them where the federal government stopped it, it's because they created it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like uh, you got, oh, these guys were going to shoot down a jet li- liner with uh, rockets that we sold them and convinced them that they should shoot down a jet liner with. Yeah, I know, you know exactly what you're saying. Exactly, yeah. and, and that's what they do. And so they, and that's exactly what they do with, with the drug stuff, too, is they, they get guys, they say, well, you're a criminal. Introduce me to all your criminal friends, and here's some drugs, or here's some money, like go buy some drugs, and... They give people a pass to operate mm-hmm. sometimes for extended periods of, t- uh, periods of time. And then those guys, guys that do all the nefarious stuff in conjunction with government are the guys that walk away with money in their pocket and no time in prison. Informants. And then, then uh, and those are the guys, usually the higher level guys, because the higher level guys know enough to be valuable to be able to turn people in. The guys at the bottom of the totem pole don't have any currency. 
They don't have mm-hmm. anybody to turn in. So those guys, you know, it's like uh, this top drug pin, kingpin. They'll give him 80 years, but then they'll they'll waive, you know, 75 of it. And then he'll oh do the God. five the five in a camp or something, and they'll suspend some. Because and, he gave up a bunch of people under him? Yep. And then all those, and then as you get down to the bottom of the list, you got guys, and they're like, oh, well, we only gave him 20. But he doesn't have anybody to tell on. And he doesn't have anything. And those guys are the guys. And, and, those, and it's really sad because those are the guys that don't have anything. Those yeah. are the guys that are grinding on the street that on average are making less than 10 bucks an hour selling, you know, slinging crack and stuff like that. Those yeah. guys are working their ass off in a highly dangerous situation that has huge criminal penalties. It's really sad to me. Yeah, they're at risk not only from their peers but from law enforcement exactly. you know, catching them. And I would I would talk to these guys all the time because those those are the guys that I would always say to myself, if there's anybody that is likely to not recommit it's those guys if you can get mm-hmm. them to change their mind you know it's not like i would make a mission out of it i wouldn't be like you know going around going around trying to like convert people but i would have people approach me and they'd say you're a really smart guy you read all these books and stuff you know how to do things if i wanted to do this and get away with it how would i do it and i'd say you really want to know <laughs> and they'd say yeah and i'd be like okay here's how you do it and I'd break it all down for him. And I'd be like, and if you do this, then you got to do that. And you got to do this. And now you're exposing yourself to this. So now you got to do this. And you got to do that. And then they'd be like, holy hell, that's a lot of stuff. And I'd be <laughs> yeah. like, I'd be like, yeah, that's pretty complicated. And I'd say, or you could do something a lot less complicated. And instead of looking over your shoulder, you could just start your own business. And so I would hand out these like entrepreneur and start your own business for dummies books and stuff like that. And I've actually kept up with a few guys that have read those books, continue to talk to me for for spans of time and right? are out running their own businesses now. So, no kidding. Yeah, uh, so I feel pretty good about that. Yeah, yeah, you should. I mean, you so. changed lives. Did talking to these guys change your outlook on that element of society? Like before you went in, did you view, I know, you know, your father had fairly conservative views when you're growing up. Did you view uh, low-level criminals a certain way and then that changed once you actually got to know them and talk to them about how they got where they were? Maybe in some respects, I mean, you know, you know, they're still human beings. They're still people, and people do bad things. Good people do bad things. Bad people do good things, and vice versa. I don't want to pass a value judgment, judgment and say that all these people are bad or all the, you know whatever the case may be. But you've got, and, and at the same time, I'm not saying that uh, like these people don't get a pass. Uh-huh. You know, if they do bad things, they they pay the price. You know, that's that's how society works. It's how law works, and we have an obligation to people who are not doing bad things to make sure that those other people are removed, and particularly people that are performing acts of, in my opinion, anytime you coerce somebody else to do something they don't want to do, or you take things from other people, which is in itself a, an act of coercion, the state has an obligation to to protect one another against that. That's the purpose of the government. Uh, that's the purpose of our, uh, you know, of our, our sort of mutual compact that we have. When they do that, they we've got to take them out and give them a time out and prevent them from performing those acts because we need to make sure that other people are free. And that ultimately is is what freedom is: is the the freedom to be, to not be forced to do things that we don't want to do or to give up things that belong to us. You've got these people that don't get that, <laughs> or uh, alternatively, don't care. They put their own 
priorities above anyone else's, which means that they need to be removed from civil society because it's a it's a mutual agreement, guys. You can't yeah. just go take the other guy's car. That's not how it works. <laughs> you <laughs> no, know? Yeah, we have to respect each other's <laughs> stuff. Exactly. Yeah. The freedom means the freedom to let other people do what they want to do, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't mean you get to do whatever the hell you want. So so there's, you know, in order for the entire thing to work, you know, you have to have that. And, you know, a lot of those guys don't get that. And like I said, they don't have opportunity. So I'm not giving them a free pass by any means. But I am saying that... Um, uh, and this is not one of those things where I say, like, society is at fault. But in a way, we are. You know, we we as a society take these, these guys, put them in a situation where they have minimal opportunities. Then we throw them in a place that only serves to train them to be better at doing what it is that they've already gotten in trouble. And, you know, everybody says that. But it's absolutely true. And in, yeah. in addition to that, there's no incentive for them to reform. There's no incentive for them to get better. And there's ample opportunity to do that. To, you know, like I said, the, these the guys that are the most amenable to change are the ones that have nothing at all, and the guys that get screwed the worst. It's those guys. There is ample opportunity to go uh, create a system. Uh, like there's legislation that's been proposed on many occasions. It's called the the Literacy Education Rehabilitation Act for the federal system. And that's mm-hmm. one of the bills that I really love, and it gets introduced periodically and then gets dropped. Nothing ever happens with it. But essentially, what it is is that they would dole out additional good time, meaning you get out sooner if you can demonstrate academic achievement or vocational achievement. And, of course, that that requires that there be increased opportunity for educational and vocational achievement in those places. But, uh, you know, it's like, look, those guys are hungry, and they want out, and they've got no other way to do it. Work them. Make them learn. And then those guys will learn. And how many of them will recommit? Well, the data says that most of the people that complete vocational and educational programs in places like that, the recidivism rate is less than a third what it is for everybody else. So, okay, we can say, and we, we can stop, and we can say, well, what's the right thing to do for people? Is it that? Well, you know what? Let's ignore that. Screw people. Let's not even talk about people that are, that are criminals because, you know, we're not bleeding hearts here. Let's be serious. So if we, say, if we take that stance and we approach it from a, a sterner sort of viewpoint, we have a responsibility to the rest of Americans to ensure that they are not uh, subject to uh, acts of criminal violence or thievery or whatever the case may be. As such, those people are going to get out. Why would we not want to pursue a public policy course that ensures that that happens less and not even half as much less, you know, but two-thirds as much less? Even if you don't care personally about the, the well-being of the people getting out, seems like doing what you're talking about still protects society. Exactly. More, right? And if that's your objective... That seems like a pretty easy choice. So, yeah, so I don't it, think it, so. But, I, I mean, I frame it that way because it's like, uh, you know, you've got your guys that are, you know, hardcore criminal punishment, and they, they're like, well, they don't deserve opportunity. Well, I don't care whether you think they deserve opportunity or not because really it's irrelevant. Really it's a public policy question. We have an obligation to protect society. How is it that we do that? We ensure that there are less crimes. How do we ensure that we make sure there's less crimes at minimal costs? Oh, gee, we could do this. And... You could even pretend like you feel good about it for a minute. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, but that's one of those things that would be, I think, um, I think it would be the way to go. And, or, you know, is the is the system ready for that kind of thing? I don't think so. Not yet. So. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah, it's too bad because I think it would make the play, the world safer. So when you were in the shoe at FCI Butner, did they break any rules? Did they keep you in there longer than really you should have been? Yes. According to the um, program statements, so in the federal government, everything is regulated, as I said, and they have procedures for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the feds, everything is the same across any federal bureaucracy. You have laws, 
and then below laws you have rules that are promulgated by the authority for that part of the government or whatever that part of the government is regulating and that's called the CFR the Code of Federal Regulations and the Code of Federal Regulations is the interpretation of the government body to implement said law that was passed right mm-hmm. um, then below that you have below the CFR you have program statements and program statements are a further interpretation that is far more specific promulgated by the the acting body so before I went into the the federal system. I read the entire program statement for the entire Bureau of Prisons. It's many, many thousands of pages. Oh my God! I read it twice. Wow! <laughs> so uh, by the time I got there, I knew more about the You're rules familiar with it than yeah. they did. Oh, okay, <laughs> so, all right. Because most of them have never read it. So, so I'd, and and then I also over the years went ahead and read the CFR because I often found instances where the program statement and the CFR did not agree. Mm-hmm. The CFR takes precedence because it carries the force of law, whereas a program statement does not program statement is not uh not legally binding it's more like guidance yeah it's guidance it's it's bureaucratically binding but it's not um it it doesn't carry the force of of you know of law like cfrs do so or the cfr like the cfr does like anything in the in the code so you know being familiar with all that was helpful yeah (laughs) so i would know you know what you know what are they allowed to do what are they not allowed to do in the case of me being in shoe for that amount of time, yes, it's a violation of their of their rules. It's also a violation of the Code of Federal, federal Regulations. It's illegal. The reason why they did it and is because the FBI claimed precedence, and they can do whatever they want, and they can break the law all they want. That's what they do. I mean, look at uh, look at the news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you look at what's going on these days. Yeah, that that is the, the anytime the people that are in charge of enforcing the law think that the law does not apply to them, that is the very definition of corruption. And that leaves you, I imagine, in a helpless position, right? Because who's going to hold them accountable? Who's going to? Well, I filed a lawsuit. You filed a lawsuit. Yeah. Okay. And how, what's eventually, that? Eventually, eventually, uh, they agreed to let me out. They did. Okay. If I dropped the suit, yeah. If you dropped the suit, <laughs> yeah. all right. Well, because we had them, we we had enough to really be troubling for them. So at one point, uh, some some prison guards had uh, had assaulted me pretty egregiously while I was uh, restrained um, with belly chain cuffs and shackles. And the good news was is that it was all caught on camera. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Wow. So, the, but the bad news is we couldn't get a copy of the uh, of the footage. I was going to say, I'll bet that footage mysteriously got lost. It did, but the fact that something that was covered by three cameras mysteriously disappeared in a situation like that, once it got to court, it was they they had to stop it because it made them look pretty bad. So Yeah, you can explain. With, with one camera, you can explain away a possible accident or recording yeah. over, but with three cameras, you yeah. can't ex- they, can't, they couldn't explain that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so that was... Um, so, yeah, I ended up getting out eventually, and, and that was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. I imagine it was a big relief. Did you need help from your family or friends outside of the prison in order to initiate that lawsuit? Absolutely. Yeah, my, uh, my father was very helpful. Um, he paid for it, and, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't cheap. And, yeah, I imagine. Uh, you know, I had a, a very prestigious, well-known attorney um, in North Carolina handled the case. It raised eyebrows, that's for sure. But it, it also meant that they treated me a little bit better. Um, you know, the legal authorities did. So, well, that's good. Yeah, because they were like, they say, uh, you know, who's your attorney? And then I say, at the time, it was a guy named Kieran Shanahan. I say, Kieran Shanahan, and they go, oh, how is that how? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say. So, so that was good. Uh, and eventually all that stuff got handled. And it, and it kind of changed me a little bit because I was, you know, I was like locked in a cell all the fucking time. It, 
excuse my language. <laughs> no, no, you can swear. That's fine. How did it change you? Is it? I imagine it has to have a harsh effect on your mental health, right? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so uh, when I first got out of shoe after being in shoe that long, crowds of people and groups of people really, really made me nervous. And mm-hmm. I mean, like shaking nervous. I was always looking around, you know, trying to. Uh, see what was going on who's around me what's going and it was not because i was like it's not that you're afraid it's that you've been in a situation where everything is so controlled and stable and then all of Mm -hmm. a sudden there's like movement and color and sound and you know it used to just be cinder block walls for so long and did it have any effect on like your farsightedness your ability (laughs) to see farther away no i mean i i I would get uh when it when it was a lot of stimulation it would like give me headaches and Mm -hmm. and i'd be like trying to take it all in it was just too much it was too much and um and a similar thing happened when i first got out of the penitentiary and i got out and my dad came and picked me up and uh we stopped at a gas station and i was all excited i was like i'm gonna go in the gas station and i'm gonna get a soda mm-hmm. which you can get sodas in prison so it's nothing new but you know what you're not allowed to have and i don't even like this stuff what gum Oh, really? You're not allowed to have gum. So I said, well, hell, I'm going to go buy some gum. So I go yeah. to the gum display, and it's like an aisle. It's like an entire aisle of gum. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, of course, in, in you know, prison, there's no, no real choices, you know. So I'm standing there, and I'm looking, and it's like all these different colors and all this different stuff, and it's so overwhelming. And I was just like, I didn't know what to do. It, it took me a few minutes to pick a soda, too, because it was like, you know, I was like, oh, my God, there's like so many choices. And then and you hear about this um from guys coming back from overseas and you hear about this uh, similar sort of thing from guys that are emigrating to the U.S. for the first time is, you know, our consumer culture, we've got so many choices. It's just ridiculous. And so you're like, you come from a place like that and you go there and I'm standing there and I'm just like at a complete loss. And my dad comes over to me and he says, you want me to pick one out for you? (laughs) (laughs) I said, said, no, 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 I got this. But I mean, for, for literally for months, when I when I first got out from for maybe close to a year, every time I would go into a store, I'd be blown away, just subconsciously, you know, mm-hmm. just with the the colors and the assault on your senses of all the different choices and options, and, and it's just it was a lot. So it was definitely a similar sort of thing happened when you get out of shoe, and you're like a lot of you're bombarded by stimuli that you are unaccustomed to. Yeah, I imagine even conversations with other people, right? Yeah, you still talk to people in your show. Oh, you can. <laughs> yeah, now, can you talk to each other through the vent system, like yep. they, like yeah. I see in the movies? Or? Absolutely. In fact, okay. um, for a good long span of time, there was a guy in shoe who was a buddy of mine, crazier than a bed bug, really nice guy, <laughs> bank robber. Yeah, and he was. Uh, you have to move cells like every three weeks. You know, so you can't tunnel out a la Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, did they watch Shawshank too <laughs> yeah. many times or what? Uh, standard standard procedure. So, okay. so, so what I would do is um, for a long time he was in the, the cell adjacent to me that shared the same vent stack, and we would flip back and forth. So mm-hmm. every three weeks we'd trade. It was good because, you know, when you trade with somebody else, you don't know who they are. The cell's dirty. you got to spend like a day cleaning it. But if it's like, you know, if it's your buddy, it's like you switch back and forth. And then the guys underneath of us did the same thing. Oh, really? So okay. there was four of us for a good number of months downstairs. One of the guys, like, left, got out, went back to General Pop, and then came back. But it, So my little party line vent, um, <laughs> it, was, it was very uh, – so we, we all would talk to each other. And then you talk to people, you know, across the across the range and stuff, but generally not too much because then whatever you talk about, everybody can hear it. You know? Right, right. But through the vent stack, it's only the people on that register that can hear it. 
Were there any arguments ever that take place through the vent stand? Oh, yeah, yeah. And oh, you, you have guys downstairs, like, yelling at each other through the vent that, have, like, fought each other or something. And, oh, jeez. And you'd be like, really, guys? You yeah, know? come on. I mean, yeah. you can't just, like, make <laughs> up. I mean, come on. Yeah, like, come on, guys. Like, chill out. And, you know, and that's what I would try to remind people. I'd be mm-hmm. like, hey, man, I'm living here. <laughs> You know, was there a window in the cell, even even like a tiny one? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, you really couldn't see anything. Couldn't see anything. Okay, no. I'm sure it's designed that way. Legally, it can't be designed that way. It oh, can, really? It can happenstance be that way. Okay, it, it can't be designed that way. It would be against the law. Oh, was that would that be considered cruel and unusual punishment? Precisely. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, wow. there, there's uh, there's court cases and laws and code of federal regulations that say that they can't do certain things unless there's a necessary security reason or oh. an, a, some other factor but they can't design things to be that way so you said butner wasn't your last stop in the prison system right you said you went to a penitentiary after that yep and what was the reason for that transfer the lawsuit no it's complicated oh okay <laughs> um there was a lot of stuff going on part of it was I don't. I don't know how much impact it had. I suspect that it was a, a you know a good deal of impact. But at the time, my father was working on uh, prison reform issues and still does mm-hmm. um, off and on. And he was in the process of he was doing two things. One of the things that he had done I, earlier on during my my time caused me a great deal of grief, which is that he was blocking legislation the Justice Department wanted, and they started messing with me. Oh, jeez. And uh, they say they don't do that kind of thing. They absolutely Oh, do. yeah, I'm sure they don't. <laughs> Come they, on. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely do. So the other stuff was that he was testifying before, I think it was the, the House Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, I think uh, Sensenbrenner, uh, Congressman Sensenbrenner at the time, about my treatment and other, you know, other issues associated with the criminal justice system. And they would flip out. <laughs> I mean, they would, like, they would flip out. And it, w- it would cause me grief. So there was stuff associated with that. There was a there was a guy who had had it out me out for me for a while. I forget what the whole genesis of it was. He's one of these administrators. That if he thought that you were like challenging his authority in some way, mm-hmm. he would really take offense. A lot of administrators are that way, and yeah. I'm kind of the guy that will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I'd be like, you can't do that. Or I wouldn't. I I try to avoid saying you can't do that. I'd be like, you're not permitted to do that. Yeah. And then they'd be like, what? And you'd be like, yeah, according to, you know, this, that, and the other, you're not, not allowed to do that. You know, and you, obviously you're doing it, but yeah, <laughs> there's penalties. You know? And, of course, they'd be like, oh, you want to talk to me about penalties? Well, let's see what you're doing. And, you know, oh, it's a two-way street. But yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't create any issues if nobody created, you know, if he was he was trying to prevent me from ordering a certain kind of paint for oil painting. Mm-hmm. He wanted to prevent people from ordering oil paint at all because they said that because of certain paints were classified as potentially cancer-causing in California, <laughs> California <laughs> Proposition 65 paints, they didn't want us to be able to order. Yeah. Even though the federal government said that it was safe. You know, I was like, I pulled out the legislation, you know, the the American standards, ASTM, whatever, all all the stuff, you know, like all the the stuff to back me up. And I'm like, why are you going to allow the jurisdiction of California to dictate to the federal government and to a federal facility what it is is safe and it's not safe? Because according to federal standards, code of federal regulations and everything else, everything's fine. And he did not like that. Oh, wow. And so eventually what they ended up doing is they ended up taking all of my stuff from me. Oh, come on, really? That's just sadistic. Yeah, so this, but this is the kind of stuff they do because that's all you have. So um, yeah, they took all my paint. They took one of my paintings that I was working on. It was like a painting of my dog uh, that I was doing. And when they did that, and I'd spent like you know, I probably had thirty or forty hours on that painting, mm-hmm. you know, and I was 
very, very upset. They knew it was important to you. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you spend that amount of time on something. Oh, God. So when they did that, I kind of flipped out, yelled at them and all this stuff. And Yeah. Yeah. And so when they did that, they uh, they wrote me up. They locked me up. They took all my stuff and threw me in shoe. Oh, my God. And then shipped me to the pen. The, the environment at the pen was a lot worse, or was it tougher than FCI Butner? I didn't have any issue there. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I never, I never had any problem in the pen. Um, the pen is very different. It's a very different place. I was only there for, um, I want to say, about two years. Mm-hmm. You know, when I got there, they were like, you should not be here. Like, they'd look at my file, and they'd be like, you are not supposed to be here. And yeah. I, and I'd be like, well, here I am. And yeah. <laughs> and uh, they'd be like, somebody, that, like, I was told by many different administrators, somebody screwed you because you have a variance on here that shouldn't be on here. And, yeah. And, um, you know, and I'd be like, well, you know, I'd, I'd tell them, like, there's stuff, you know, there's, there's stuff. <laughs> they, they, they're like, they're like, okay. The yard that I went to, thankfully, was an independent yard, meaning, uh, so, so when you go from a medium to a, to a penitentiary, the penitentiary is very different. Uh, medium, there's less of the racial stuff going on. There's less of the, you know, what they call cars, which are like groups of gangs and groups of people and stuff. And in the penitentiary, there's a lot of that. And if you're not associated with a car or you're not associated with a specific gang, it can leave you open to being victimized and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Me being the kind of guy that I am, if I ended up on a yard that was, you know, where they want you to click up with somebody, I probably would have gotten a fight and then got shipped off right away and yeah. ended up somewhere else. And, you know, or maybe not, who knows. But uh, but I'm, I'm not really, a, like, I'm not going to join a gang or like I, I, you don't seem like the gang type. No, I, I refuse. So, <laughs> so uh, this particular yard, I went to USP Lee County in uh, Lee County, Virginia, um, mm-hmm. and it's known it, at the time was known as an independent yard, which is good. Um, but the guy's like, "Oh yeah, it's an independent yard. This guy, you should when you get out of here, you should talk to this guy or this guy. And this is a like a sergeant or whatever for the correctional officer, mm-hmm. and he's like, you should talk to this guy or this guy. These are the shot callers for the independents. And I looked at him and I said. I said, now now I'm confused. And he said, what do you mean? I said, you just said it was an independent yard, but yet there's shot callers for the independents. I said, I find that to be inconsistent. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, he, he kind of laughed, and he was like, well, whatever. And <laughs> so so I said, nobody, because I, I told him then, I said, nobody speaks for me but me. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, I, I got on the yard, and um, and it was fine. And, you know, the Nazi skinhead guys had their little thing going on. And I, of course, those guys are such morons. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I shun them. And those guys are usually very, very weak also. just Yeah. Um, they prey on each other. They prey on other, uh, you know, it's funny because they're like, white solidarity. And then they take advantage of each other. It's like, yeah, looking out for the white man. If yeah, you truly really. believe in white solidarity, why the hell are you victimizing each other? Uh, it's just people victimizing <laughs> each other. <laughs> it's like, uh, it doesn't make any sense to me. And then, of course, I'm... I'm one of these guys that's like, uh, they say, like, oh, you shouldn't hang out with these guys because they're Hispanic. Or you shouldn't hang out with these guys because they're black. I don't care. Mm-hmm. So um, I sweated in Sweat Lodge with the Native Americans because that's the religion that I practice. So I hung out with a lot of Native Americans. Uh, some of the white supremacist guys didn't like it. Mm-hmm. If they bothered to even say anything to me about it, I would look them in the eye and tell them to go fuck themselves. Good. And they that would be the end of that. Like I said, most of them were pretty pretty soft guys you know i had like uh there was a a cuban guy that i would hang out with that was pretty cool he had a life sentence never getting out um what was his charge murder um it 
it was uh, complicated. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, but there were there were people that died, and there were lots of drugs involved. So okay. All right. Um, there was um, you know another bank robber guy, black guy that I used to hang out with, and then there was a uh, a former white supremacist that I used to hang out with. He was covered in swastikas, <laughs> and I uh, I made it known and also openly uh, covered up the swastikas for free because mm-hmm. I, I was tattooing. Oh, um, you, you you figured out how to do tattoos too? Oh yeah, yeah. So. A man of many trades. <laughs> so so uh, so I so I hung out with a, a diverse group of uh, of people. The, one of the things that I learned early on in the whole process, and and it was reinforced very strongly in the in the, uh, in the penitentiary, was basically that the guys the guys that you want to associate with are the guys who could give a damn about all of the this race or that uh-huh. car or this gang or you know those are the guys that you want to hang out with because they they think the same way that you do they're independent thinkers and yeah you know and so i mean de facto you end up having your own little group of people but it's <laughs> but it's multiracial multicultural and nobody calls the shots for anybody and you know there, there's no uh, real artifice there everybody's pretty straightforward uh, they don't victimize people they don't do any of those things they're generally good people and even though that a lot of them have done terrible terrible things or they're, they're good people and like i said some of them never getting out and yeah. uh that was usually the saddest thing is is i particularly because i was considered a short timer like i said i was there two two and a half years mm-hmm. and guys would be like you know how much time are you left and i'd be like uh, you know two and a half years and they'd be like they'd be sad and wistful yeah and you know and, it, and it's not because and, and not jealous those guys don't get jealous they get sad because it brings to mind that they're that they're never going to have that and mm-hmm. and they'd also be happy for you they'd be like get out there and do well you know yeah. um like you know be you know have a good life like do good things and uh that was always really and you know and, and guys that that hated each other uh particularly the pen it was less prevalent in the medium but in in the pen because um, you had so many guys that are never getting out you know guys yeah. that are that are leaving and people would be cheering them cheering for them yeah you know like yeah get out of here man get the hell out of here live your life get out don't come back so they don't get mad at you just because you have a shorter sentence i'm sure there's guys that are like that but yeah that's not a that's not a common thing so sounds like you ended up with the right group of people well no i mean that's and i encountered that at the at the medium and i experienced it myself in the medium like when Mm -hmm. i had my sentence people would add they'd say i got three years or four years and they'd say how long you have and i'd be like i got 120 months man Oh. And, and you know in the pen that's like nothing but in the medium that's a lot of time that's so, a lot of time yeah and so you know and I'd, I'd like feel like I'm gonna tear up you know and I'd be like and I'd be like man that's, that's awesome that you're gonna get out sooner than that like you you know and, and that I think that that's a, a sort of a, a very common um, and universal feeling of course there's a, you know you can't make hugely crazy mass generalizations but I think that that's that's pretty indicative of what you can expect. Yeah. yeah so. so when you get out, it's got to be quite an adjustment coming out and back out in a free society. I mm-hmm. mean, was it traumatic, or how did you deal with it, all the stimulation? Yeah, I mean, that was the big thing. The most notable aspect was, like, the the huge amounts of, uh, you know, stimuli, uh, choices, being able to choose things and make, you know, make my own decisions. I'm pretty adaptable. It didn't take me long. <laughs> Oh, that's good. So I went to a halfway house in West Virginia mm-hmm. and uh, worked for a, an oil and gas services company there for a brief period of time. I had uh, a, a fellow, the guy that I work for, that uh, is through two of these walls here to my right. Oh, really? Who actually came to visit me. 
many times and helped raise money for my defense initially. Richard Vigory, uh, he's also been active in criminal justice reform issues. And uh, he told me, he had offered me a job before I went and got in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So, so but, but uh, once I <clears throat> once I was uh, in prison, he said, if you ever want a job and you get out, you have it. And I said, okay. So I took him up on that offer. Actually, the oil and gas services company that I worked for in West Virginia tried to tried to hire me. They're the second largest in the world. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're a big company, and they, they tried to send me to Houston and <laughs> and make me a manager, and I, yeah. and I said, uh, I, "It's funny because they were offering me more than twice what Richard was offering me to come work here." Really, um, wow. and um, but you know, I I felt like I I wanted I wanted to be back in the political business. I wanted to be back in the uh, you know in this in this part of the of uh, of things in the thick of it. I feel pretty strongly about doing good things. Making money is great, but it's not the only mm-hmm. thing. So. So he offered me a position here, and um, I don't I don't believe he told them much of anything because they uh, they're like, so what are your skills? And, you know, <laughs> and they stuck me in a cubicle uh, downstairs. You well, know. you you know how to run various small businesses, right? You have experience <laughs> yeah, exactly. doing that. Exactly. Yeah, I've got experience doing that. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, it, well, before I before I got into trouble, I was doing online fundraising. Um, so they stuck me downstairs and made me a junior fundraising guy or whatever within a few months that i was no longer the junior fundraising guy so mm-hmm. so we're, I, should, I should mention we're sitting here in your office right now at american target advertising yes right? i'm managing director of vigory political lists i sort of have a an on and on again off again acting responsibility uh, mostly in a supervisory capacity for our digital fundraising efforts and i've worked on a variety of campaigns over the last seven years here raised money for some pretty cool projects i've been responsible for submitting lots and lots of uh petitions and public comments and other various things uh it's like i i can vote again now but uh for a while i couldn't people would say how do you feel like how do you feel about that and i'd say well i raised two million dollars this year and i was responsible for over one hundred and fifty thousand petitions and did this and did that and they and they'd say oh and i'd say so i feel okay <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm having more impact than most. You're still others. influencing the process, even if you're not pulling the lever, right? Exa- exactly. So, and and that's you know that's basically you know what I, what I say is, is I'm still I'm still a part of the you know, part of the process, trying to help people have their voice. So, and ultimately, you know, I, I used to work at, at the American Conservative Union. My dad comes from things from the nonprofit side, and for me. <clears throat> I've always felt that there's a certain amount of bad stuff that happens in any industry mm-hmm. um, and self-serving stuff. Like the, the big thing that people talk about these days are like the scam packs and the uh, in, within our industry. And it's like uh, self-serving organizations that what's pop a, up. What's a scam pack? Scam pack is like um, a pack that exists purely to raise money to then have that money go into the pockets of the people who run the pack to like pay their to pay their salary, yeah, and, right, I see and, what you mean. and they don't really do anything. So, right, right, and and to me, that's pretty egregious and wrong, morally, ethically, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But, um, but it also hurts the way. It, I don't like it for for bigger reasons. And and uh, what I feel about this whole process, this whole political process, is um, I don't care what side of the aisle you come from. Um, everybody can agree. Just about everybody can agree on this concept, which is that you know we have a First Amendment right to do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, including the right to petition government, and we also have the right to uh, to freedom of speech. Oftentimes, in our system and in our in our, uh, in our process, 
Uh, we have a lot of mass sort of specialization in the world these days. Uh, you have all these organizations out there, uh, nonprofit organizations. Those nonprofit organizations are your opportunity to speak out. That's your voice. You give your money to those organizations, and those organizations go out and represent you in, mm-hmm. in the halls of Congress. They go out and they fight for legislation or they fight against legislation that you disagree with or you believe in. And that's the way that it works. There's some people who decry it and say, oh, well, you know, there shouldn't be money in politics. Look, there's money in everything. Get used to it. That's life. Uh, you yeah, it's the way the world works, unfortunately. Yeah, it's like, what, do you want me to fix your tire for free? That's not how the, that's not how the world works. So <laughs> either you can go do it or you can pay a professional. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so what, I, what I look at, what I do here is I act as a conduit to ensure that people who want to have that voice have an opportunity to give those dollars to the organizations that can go out and speak on their behalf. And I don't care what anybody thinks politically. I've said I've said this very thing to a lot of people in our industry on both sides, and we can all agree on that that that's important. Mm-hmm. And you know, and it's like we don't make the most money in the world doing this kind of stuff, but it's kind of nice to feel like you're doing something good. So, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So. And, and besides this, you're you have a whole woodworking business. Yeah. I've seen I've seen pictures of some <laughs> of the stuff you make. It's amazing. Like Thank I saw you. like a gun case. Mm-hmm. It was just like incredible. I mean, what, I can't have guns, but I can make great gun cases. You can make good holders <laughs> for them, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Is that a lifetime thing? You can't you can't have guns the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, so there's there's some there's some ways you know there's there's some things that you can do, but mm-hmm. um, for the most part, yeah, no. Um, what the federal government deems to be a firearm, I am not permitted to have. Okay. Um, and that's really what it boils down to. And different states have different rules and different restrictions, but um, the feds are very specific. So I can't uh, I can't have any firearms. So I do have a great compound bow. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so Can um, you go to a gun? Like, if I have a membership at a gun range and I can bring a guest, like, can I, are, are you allowed to go to the range with me and shoot? Or you negative. just can't handle them at all? Can't, can't handle I, oh, wow. I can own them. I just can't touch them. You can own them, but you just can't touch them. Huh? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> can't touch them or have access to them. All right, yeah. all right. So, um, so yeah, I mean, if they're if they're inoperative, if they're not legally considered a firearm, then I can then I can handle them and touch them. But otherwise, I can't. And I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of people who like bend the rules, but I'm pretty um, I'm pretty uh, strict about that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like I've had I, I've had instances where people like try to hand me stuff, and I'm like, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm like actually, I need to leave now. Bye. <laughs> because if you, it, yeah, because if you like s- slip up just once and the wrong person finds out, you know, you could, they could they could land you right back in jail, right? Yeah, if, if I think that there's even the chance, I'm gone. Yeah, and it's like not even a question. Like I, I'm like, <laughs> people would be like, where the hell did he go? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's it's not uh, it's it's not worth it. So you're you're telling me outside before we came in here that you have a, a woodworking business you have a whole warehouse and you have like uh, some part-time employees that work for you yeah yeah so um we've got um what's, just, the, what's the name of it it is called the workshop um, okay also known as the fredericksburg workshop um and we're in fredericksburg virginia uh it's an interesting sort of business model we've got um we've got a membership-based shop so think of it like a gym mm-hmm. uh you, you know you have a gym you pay a monthly fee you have access to a shop uh or you know weights and in this case it's saws band saws and other equipment uh planers joiners uh dust collection equipment chisels sanders so on and so forth so 
basically just like a gym. It's expensive to set up your own home gym. It requires mm-hmm. a lot of space, requires a lot of financial investment and time. So we did that. We set up a you know, we've set up a pretty awesome shop, actually, a couple of them. You know, we've got the different shops. You pay a monthly fee, have access to the shops. And then we sell lumber, you know, a lot of exotics. Basically hard to find um, nice lumber, slabs, that kind of thing. Stuff from South America and Africa and, and here in the U.S. We do custom commission projects, bar tops, uh, tabletops. I'm partnered up with a guy out of Guatemala, so we, uh, we have some of the best prices for kiln-dried Parada slabs in the U.S., uh, we actually sell more of those slabs outside of Virginia than we do in Virginia. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, and, and we do different projects with them. Um, what about this nice desk we're sitting at right now? Was this you? Did you make oh, this no, one? Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, no. Um, you'd have to come by the shop to see see a lot, a lot of that stuff. Or my house. I've got a lot of nice stuff there. But, yeah, so, you know, we do all that. Uh, we've got, we do classes and, uh, you know, retail and wholesale lumber sales. And, and we're moving into doing lumber processing. It's a cool sideline. Oh, really? That's cool. <laughs> so we've got, uh, we just expanded. And we've got 22,800 square feet in the warehouse. And it's broken up. Uh, we've got a 2,500 square foot members only shop. We've got a 1,950 square foot uh, member and instructional shop. So, like, if there's classes, they can be happening there. We've got a dedicated lathe room. We've got a gallery space. We've got sort of a retail environment. And then we have rental spaces and lumber racks and yeah it's cool seems like a good opportunity if say you live in a small apartment or condo like you know in my in my kind of where i live we don't have a garage or anything exactly. where i could set up my own wood shop you know so yeah i mean there's it would there would be more opportunity financially for members um up here in northern virginia than there is mm-hmm. in fredericksburg but you know younger guys if you know when somebody says hey how much would it cost to set up a shop it's like well it, it depends on what you want to do it depends on how much you want to spend Mm-hmm. But um, reasonably, if you want a shop that you can make furniture in, even if you're buying secondhand equipment, you're dropping ten, fifteen thousand easy. Yeah, you know, and, and that's crazy. and that would be on the super cheap. So you know, it's um, that would be super cheap secondhand stuff and foregoing some of the better stuff. So how is your membership? Doing? Um, not as many members as I thought <laughs> we'd have. To be honest, uh, we've yeah. got about fifty members. I think we can probably handle about 150, given the amount of space that we have. We we make most of the money that we make from custom commission projects and wholesale lumber. Okay. Um, and, you know, we never expected that the membership thing was going to pay the bills. That was oh, never the right. plan. That's that's not the, the – we're doing this whole thing because we want people to make things because we're, like, we have some sort of, sort of sickness or something. So would you, say that, <laughs> yeah. would you say that's where your main passion is, the woodworking stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I – I feel like, um, you know, we just just talked about the terrible experience that I had in my twenties. Yeah, and then uh, and then we talked briefly about here in my office where we're sitting, and then uh, talking about the workshop. I I feel like uh, I had made a decision for my life to be passionate about my life, and so I try to be that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a. If I was going to use one word to describe myself, it would probably be intense. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so Yeah, I can, I can see what you're saying. Is, I, so I, I try, you know, I do a lot of stuff, and, and I, I, but I try to channel it in a way that I find to be um, fulfilling and rewarding and beneficial. Mm-hmm. So, and with the woodworking stuff, I enjoy woodworking. I, I get personal enjoyment out of it, but I feel like other people, 
I feel like people should be making things that, um, you know, that you get uh, a lot of pleasure out of doing that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I'm trying to provide the means and the opportunity for people to do that. You have a daughter too, right? A little girl? Yes, I do. What's her name? Her name is Tesla. Tesla. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you name her after the electric cars? or She's she's named after the... Uh, uh, the, the Nikola? In, the infamous Nikola Tesla. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. How old is she? Uh, she's two months, or two months. She's two years and a couple of months. Oh, really? Yeah. What's it been like being a father? Do you enjoy it? She is awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she really is. Yeah, she's, um, I mean, you know, parents always say that, but she really is. She's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And you have uh, a dog named Riker, right? Commander Riker. Commander Riker. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And did you name him Commander Riker because of, you know, the prison experience and there's a prison called Riker's Island or does that have nothing to do with it? No, no, no. So this is for any of your listeners that are that are total nerds. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a total nerd. And uh, Commander Riker is named after uh, Commander William Riker on Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I think I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. Played by William Frakes. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I thought the commander was that Picard guy. No, no, he's the captain. Oh, he's the captain? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Sorry. One more question I want to yeah. ask. What did you think of the way that cars had changed vehicles when you first came out of prison? So I was, a, I was already a car guy. Yeah. Um, I was a BMW nut. Within the first, I think, month... I bought a 2002 5 Series BMW. That was like a brand new car. Yeah. When I when I went to prison, so I got it cheap, and it needed a bunch of work, and I fixed it up. I actually sold it for a little bit more than twice what I paid for it. I'm a BMW fanatic, so I, oh I, really? Yeah. So I I, sold, I bought that 5 Series and sold it. Bought a, a 3 Series convertible. Which, oh, cool. Which was awesome. Sold it for about the same what I paid for it. Uh, slight, I think like a couple hundred bucks more. Um, mm-hmm. But you know. Drove it for a year and sold it. And then I bought uh, another 3 Series convertible, a 335i uh, hardtop convertible. And I still have Newer ones or older? That's a 2011. Oh, uh, okay. I bought it in 2013. Oh, it's a hardtop convertible, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, cool. And it's uh, it's heavily modified now, so it's ridiculously fast. <laughs> and, uh, and then I, um, I recently, uh, because of my daughter, I needed something a little bit more... Um, Roomy. Family friendly. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I also have an X5, a BMW X5. Uh, I tell you, the, the, new, um, the newer 3 Series convertible, when I bought it, I was like, oh, my gosh. It, it's just the features, just all the little creature comforts. It's, mm-hmm. it's kind of awesome. You know, then I've got the, the X5 now. It's got, like, air-conditioned seats and stuff. It's like Those are nice, aren't they? Especially yeah. during this nasty summer we had. Yeah, now you're like, you know, and it's like it's a 20. What I, what I tell people is I'm like, they're like, man, you still have a lot of money. It's like, yeah, it's a 2012. You know, I bought it for 20 grand. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it was a hundred thousand when it was new. But I, I work on cars, so I work on my own cars, so it makes it feasible to buy mm-hmm. a, a car like that. Otherwise, it'd be ridiculous. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. As far as how much has changed, oh my gosh, it's crazy. It's like the the technology and the technology with everything else, like. Um, Facebook didn't exist. When you went away, there weren't these... Um, Smartphones didn't exist. Yeah, there weren't these internet companies collecting every personal detail <laughs> of your life and everything. Well, they were. They were? Oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah Google's <laughs> already doing that. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, and keep in mind, I was doing data and fundraising back then. Mm-hmm. People would be like, man, how'd you stay up to date? And I'd be like, dude, I was, I was in prison. I wasn't dead. 
<laughs> I was yeah. reading. I was reading more than you ever had. Right. You're still allowed to have publications and everything. <laughs> exactly. That's and why I guess the car question was kind of silly because you could have ordered car magazines and I was seen what they look like. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just didn't have an opportunity to, to actually drive any. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. No. They don't let you take test drives in prison. So, but I was I was still getting. I've, I've been a BMW Car Club member since 2000. Uh, 2000. Uh-huh. So, uh, what year is this? 18 years now? Yeah. And have now owned nine BMWs, and I received my BMW Car Club magazine every month. What do you like about BMWs so much? The, uh, the engineering, just the way they're put together? The engineering. The the engines, uh, the overall, uh, the design philosophy. If you've ever driven one, you know what I'm talking about. I have about. never driven one in my life. Yeah. I, I, I should try it sometime. <laughs> it yeah, sounds like I'm missing out. Yeah, I mean, you know, some people, what I, what I like to tell people is I say, do you, uh, you know, people who have money, and they say, you're a car guy, what do you... Uh, I'm going to go buy a car. What should I buy? And I say, do you like to drive cars? And they say, if they say yes, then I say buy BMW. If they say no, I say buy a Mercedes. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I thought Mercedes supposedly were engineered even better. I mean, they're both German companies, right? They're both they're both very well-built cars. So, so does your whole prison experience, does it have any lingering like negative effects on your life now when you try to go about your life and go about your business? I don't feel that it does. Occasionally, uh, it's been used against me, um, but not in any way that's had any real effect. And just people taking cheap shots? Or? Yeah, you know, stuff like that. And it's it's not, you know, what's done is done. I think that if there's any way that somebody could demonstrate that they're, that they're not apt to be getting into any problems, <laughs> I think that, <laughs> I think that, uh, that, that I've managed to demonstrate that. So I, I, it's such an empty saying, but it is what it is. Yeah. My yeah. wife says that all the time. Yeah. I mean, it, and it really it's like you said i spent my 20s in prison mm-hmm. what'd you do in your 20s i was probably less productive than you, <laughs> you <know>? precisely so, <laughs> yeah so you know it's like i yeah. worked a bunch of crap jobs <laughs> moved from place to place because i couldn't afford the rent anymore yeah it sounds like yeah. what i did <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, exactly so uh, you know i i um i got a i got a college degree i read tens of thousands of books did a lot of weightlifting learned how to paint i didn't just sit around twiddling my thumb so it's uh it, when people ask me about it generally i tell them it was like a really i say i say it was like a really shitty boys only college <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so they let you do a correspondence college course no no or college uh, they actually had an extension program from a local college so. oh that's good yeah then which they don't they they actually shut that program down i was one of the last people to go through it and that's the kind of thing, like I was talking about the Literacy Education Rehabil- yeah. Rehabilitation Act. They should be encouraging that. They should be pushing for that. And and obviously, you know, college is probably not the right thing for most guys in there, and that's not some sort of value judgment on, on where people are. It's the, just the fact is we as a, as a country um, need capable, skilled, working men and women. And yeah. I don't see any reason why we can't rely on, you know, on, on – providing those opportunities for people that that are hungry for them so you know college should be offered uh and you know people say well how are you going to pay for that you're talking about nothing you're talking about peanuts compared to the the compared to the whole prison budget or well compared to the prison budget and compared to the societal cost i mean we're, we're talking nothing you know it's like um is like another one of these things guys in prison would say all the time is like they'd be like it's all the prison the whole prison thing it's really a scam it's really a big scam <laughs> and you know it's like this uh this sort of uh self-assured like uh they're locking us up for money because it's all about money and it's like dude yeah there's there's uh self-interested parties that are associated with it that that want budget and all this other stuff but the the 
budget for the Federal Bureau of Prisons is less than $2 billion a year. Do you know, do you have any idea what the federal budget is? It's not even a rounding error on the Justice Department budget. You're out of your mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they'd be like, they'd be like, what? <laughs> they like, you don't even know what you're talking about. So, so, but my point is, is that you're talking about several hundred thousand uh, inmates in the federal system. And those people should be given those opportunities. They have the Unicore system in place. It's the prison industry system. They have vocational training capability. They need to incentivize it, structure it, and and create a, a system for it. I mean, that's what they do. That's mm-hmm. what we pay them to do, is to create systems to do things that are beneficial for our society. And they need to do that. I can't recall the names of the legislations off the top of my head, but I was reading several articles from the past years about reform your father has pushed for. Mm-hmm. Was the goal of the reforms he was seeking or he is seeking, is that more to give prisoners recourse when the prison violates the rules or help them to file a lawsuit easier or is it to provide like uh, you know benefits or opportunities like you were just talking about one of the pieces of legislation that he pushed for uh, was was to make it easier to seek redress when prisoners are subject to to really shitty conditions Mm -hmm. and he's worked very closely with with pat nolan on all of that pat nolan um uh, he was a lawmaker in California, got in trouble in the early 80s, mm-hmm. um, or, or I guess it was late 80s or something. You know, he did some time, and he was friends with my father before that all happened. He then, after he had got out, he did did a little of this, did a little bit of that, and ended up working for uh, Prison Fellowship Ministries for many years for Chuck Colson, who's passed away a few years ago. Pat is a really, he's a really good guy. He is very, very much involved in this stuff and has been since since he got out. Heck, it's almost 30 years now. Yeah. And the Pew Research Institution and the American Conservative Union have banded together to create the uh, criminal justice reform. It's a, sort of a project of the American Conservative Union. So it's funded by a left, left-wing left think tank and a right-wing political activism outfit. And, yeah. uh, and then you got, uh, you know, a, a conservative... Uh, prison reform guy it's like how many apple carts and worldviews you want to disrupt all at once yeah it's like yes yes evil conservatives working together with evil left-wing crazy people (laughs) and then here you have it let's make things happen (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so and and they've they've had some successes uh most recently he passed uh you know was instrumental in having legislation passed uh earlier this year that would allow them to uh to release people that are very sick and dying uh Mm -hmm. early from prison because Compassionate release is what they call that. And, yeah. And um, they, they used to do that sort of thing, and they stopped doing it maybe 20 or 30 years ago. They, and they, you know, there's a lot of the stuff like that that people presume happens and does not. So, you know, they're, they're trying to address some of that. Another person who um, I'd like to sing the praises of that's very much involved in, in prison reform stuff is Julie Stewart, who founded the uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a great outfit. Another, uh, you know, a- another thing that'll disrupt your political worldview <laughs> because it's a left-wing organization funded by both right-wing and left-wing people. Wait a minute, uh, uh, is there? You're telling me Akeen right now is singing the praises of a left-wing organization? Absolutely. Oh my yeah. gosh! All yeah. right, you gotta, you gotta, you know. Here's the thing: is like, uh, you know, ideology is ideology. People mm-hmm. believe what they believe, but when we believe the same thing, that's when we get to work together. Yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> thanks a lot for doing this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. All right. Thanks to David Keene and thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music of this podcast. Kevin's website is incompetech.com. That's I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening.